our Old Testament lesson. Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now turn with me to our New Testament reading and sermon text. Matthew chapter 15, verse 29 through 39. Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 39. We continue here with our sermon series through the gospel according to Matthew. Recall that Jesus is coming back from his encounter with that Canaanite or Gentile woman in the land of Tyre of Sidon. And now we come to these words. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away, hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them 
and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were four thousand men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, brothers and sisters, as we near our 10th anniversary, it's important to ask you a particular question, and that is this. What aspirations do you have for this church? What do you aspire for this church to be and to become? If you could get into your time machine and fly into the future five years down the road, ten years down the road, what would you like to see in this congregation? What would characterize it? I think that oftentimes many of our aspirations are shaped and formed by our own particular backgrounds. There are many of us who have come to this church from a joyful and healthy Reformed Church and have found this to be a new Reformed Church home. And there becomes an aspiration to see this church resemble that one to some degree. And that is good. We want to see healthy, joyful, Reformed churches across the land and that we bear some connection with others who share the same confession and worship. There are others who come to this church and have come from contexts which we could say are doctrinally lacking, perhaps even negligent. Some coming from churches with a, you can say, Calvinism light. Or maybe a church that is just in some very serious error, even borderline heresy. And so then coming to this church, you begin to aspire to see this church become one that is doctrinally solid unlike your past, and that we will do a good job of dotting our doctrinal I's and crossing our doctrinal T's. And of course, we want to see that happen, do we not? Some come to this church with spiritual wounds from the past, and so you would aspire to see this church become a place of spiritual healing and spiritual safety. And again, this is a good thing. If we begin to collect together all these different backgrounds and then those corresponding aspirations for this church, we have some very good things that we would like to see characterize this congregation in the years to come. Oftentimes, however, within Reformed churches, there can be a sort of experience and aspiration that's missing from the collection that exists. Maybe not missing entirely, but maybe very small and minimum. And that is the experience of one who comes to this church as an outsider. One outside the Christian faith. One coming from a vantage point of unbelief. One coming from a time of not being even a churchgoer from, for many, many years. And so, when that is lacking, that oftentimes means that our collection of aspirations is lacking as well. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come to this text today, 
I want to encourage us to not lose sight of that important aspiration that we would have for this congregation to be a place where we show compassion to the outsider. May we see in our Savior the compassion that He has had first toward you and to me, who by nature are outsiders, welcoming us and being patient with us, that we may then show the same sorts of compassion and patience and care for those who are not like us. May we be so encouraged this day. We begin with that underlying theme of this text. Our first point, compassion for the outsider. The second and third point will build off that great theme as we see how Christ's compassion then becomes manifest and how we then manifest that compassion as well. So our first point, compassion for the outsider. Notice that context where Jesus is. He is walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now this is a pretty common thing that we see in the Gospels. And so it could be very easy for us just to ignore that little detail that Matthew gives us and maybe just assume, ah, oh, Jesus is one of those guys that likes to go for nice strolls along the beach and um, he just enjoys seeing the scenery. No, not really. You see, the ancient reader to whom Matthew is writing would understand something about this geography and would begin to pick up on clues that Matthew is giving us. You see, Jesus is coming from Tyre in Sidon. And if we would imagine for a moment that the city of Cincinnati is the Sea of Galilee, then Tyre and Sidon would be Oxford. Jesus has walked up there to Oxford, and now he's returning. Now the way that you would get back from Oxford or Tyre to the Sea of Galilee or Cincinnati would be to go immediately east, and then basically come down I-75 and get to the top of the sea, the northernmost tip. And then Jesus would have a choice to make. Which way would he then go if he's walking along the sea? Would he go to the west or would he turn and go to the east? The west would be expected because that is the shore where the Jewish population was. It was much more populated over there than the eastern shore. The eastern shore was much more desolate. Did not have many villages there. It was much more mountainous. And it was characterized by the, whoever did live there was primarily Gentile. We have a clear suggestion here from Matthew that Jesus did not go west to the Jews, but rather went east to the outsider. We see this in that hint that there are no villages around the desolate area. In the previous feeding of the 5,000, the disciples said, hey, we could go to the villages, but there's no such suggestion made here in our text. Furthermore, Jesus goes up to the mountain, which suggests that eastern shore, more mountainous. We see as well, how do the crowds respond when they have that healing? They glorified the God of Israel. 
That is not some uh, a, a description that would be given to a Gentile context, or to a Jewish context, pardon me, but rather to a Gentile one. And at the very end of our text, in verse 39, we see Jesus get into the boats, and that suggests he's crossing the sea. Where does he end up? On the western shore, at Magadan. So all these clues come together in the text to suggest for us, very clearly I believe, that Jesus has gone east to the Gentiles. The surrounding context of this makes the very same suggestion. We've already had a feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 14, and that was very clearly a Jewish feeding. Now, why would we have a second feeding? Why would it matter? Well, it would matter if this is a Gentile one, would it not? Furthermore, we see at the beginning of our chapter, chapter 15 opens how? Jesus begins to break down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. How did he do that? By arguing against the various Jewish traditions, man-made traditions of washings that separated them from Gentiles, and also pronouncing the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament to be abrogated. Those foods have all become now clean. He proceeded to meet with and minister to a Canaanite woman up in Tyre of Sidon. And that is the immediately preceding text to ours. A woman who wanted to eat. She wanted to eat crumbs from his table. And now, where do we find ourselves? With a Savior encountering a crowd, a Gentile crowd, ready not to feed merely one woman with crumbs, but to feed this crowd of Gentiles to their satisfaction. The key term here that I want us to pick up on is verse 32, I have compassion on the crowd. Now, this is being applied especially to their hunger, but really here we're seeing the heart of Christ emerge in that key thing that first sent him to Tyre, to walk all the way up to Oxford by foot to meet one woman and to care for her. That motivation that then brought him back down to the Sea of Galilee and sent him east, that he might go to the east sider, not just the west sider and to care for them. We have here that heart that motivates the Lord Jesus Christ to heal and to feed. And his compassion was not because of something inside those Gentile Eastsiders. Because inside of them was sin. Inside of them was idolatry. Their lives were consumed with false worship and all the other sins that accompany false worship. His compassion was not because of something inside them. Hear this. His compassion is because of what is in him. Never lose sight of that. Because that is your hope. Because Christ has not come to redeem you and to rescue you because of something in your heart or something in your life. 
He has not come for you because you live a more moral life than people outside these walls. Because you've been the best of parents. Because you've been the best students. Because you please your boss. Because your sexual desires are rightly ordered. Because of all these things, we go down the list. He did not redeem you because of anything inside of you. Christ has redeemed you only because of what is inside Him. And what is inside Him is a heart of compassion for those who are lost and dead in their sins. If you know that about yourself, not just one time I had that experience of recognizing my sin and recognizing Christ's compassion, not this one-off cheap experience, but to know that and understand that day by day by day, then you will become yourself a more compassionate person. Because you will begin to see yourself in the sinful outsider. And you will see them more as one who is like you than one who is so vastly different from you. And you will begin to show compassion to them rather than to despise them. Beloved, if we are to be, for the years to come, a compassionate church, we cannot move on from this great truth. And as long as we do not, we will be a place where people can come who are overwhelmed with their sin and they will find here a place of patience a place of love, a place where we are ready to embrace and to welcome and lead them to the feet of Jesus Christ where they can find healing and feasting. Our first point, compassion for the outsider. Now we begin to see how this compassion became manifest. Our second point they are restored to wholeness. Verses 29 through 31. Know what Jesus does. He goes up on the mountain and sat down. This is pretty much verbatim a, uh, a phrase, phraseology we've seen before as Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount goes up the mountain and sits down. It's possible here there's an allusion to the Sermon on the Mount and this would kind of make this mountaintop experience here, kind of the Gentile version. But the emphasis that Matthew gives us is less on Christ's teaching and more on the faith of the crowd and of Christ's compassionate work. I don't know about you, but it seems like I can't go up a, step of, uh, a flight of stairs without becoming winded. I don't know why. Even back when I was more healthy and actually exercised, I couldn't go up a, step, a flight of stairs without just being like huffing and puffing, right? Here, what do we see? These Gentiles following Christ 
up a mountain. And they're going up a mountain, not like this big group of Gentiles who just got out of the CrossFit gym, but they're going up that mountain with people who can't walk, with people who can't see. That would be hard to climb a mountain. With people who can't talk, with people who don't have use of their arms. That is the kind of crowd that's going up this mountain chasing after Jesus. You see the courage they have, the determination they have, that they will stop at nothing to get to the feet of Jesus. And as they get to him, the Greek text kind of suggests that the people that they're carrying are just being chucked at the ground at the feet of Jesus. They're just being cast down at his feet. Perhaps because they're exhausted. I think I'd be exhausted if I were carrying someone who's paralyzed up a mountain. Or perhaps it's a suggestion that they're just being cast down to worship the king who is seated upon his mountainous throne. The Redeemer is there, is he not? And he sees this crowd. And I would apply to this crowd the words that he just spoke to that Canaanite woman. Last week's text. Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Now, let's linger here over the symbolism within this event. What is occurring here? Some can take this in a very unhelpful way. And say, well, if only you have enough faith, then all your illnesses and weaknesses will be healed. And if you aren't healed from all your weaknesses and diseases, well, then it's a problem with you. You don't have enough faith. That is not what this text is teaching us. We are witnessing here a sign. That is what Christ is doing with his healings. They are signs of something greater. He is giving us glimpses into his heavenly kingdom, the new creation. And the sign that we are seeing here is of the king restoring the humanity of his people who constitute his kingdom. We were made to live and to spread forth life. But what we see in this group as they're going up the mountain is just like a big parade of misery. What does Christ do with that parade of misery? He heals their humanity. He begins to restore them to what they were created to be. He sees their legs and heals them because the leg was made in a certain way. He sees their arms and heals them. He, he sees their eyes and their ears and heals them. He restores their humanity that they might be what He created them to be and to do what Christ created humanity to do. What do they do? Verse 31. They glorified the God of Israel. Your bodies your soul, your mind, your strength, your eyes, your tongue, they were all fashioned 
for one ultimate purpose. And that is to bring glory and praise to the God who is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And beloved, we see that so clearly in our text. And we learn from this that that is what Christ is doing in your life by the Holy Spirit. He is restoring you for the sake of His praise. He is healing you for the sake of His glory. And what a beautiful message we have for the outsider. A beautiful message of compassion. That Christ does not come to destroy your humanity, but rather to restore it and renew it so it might be as God created you to be. That you might become a better version of yourself than you can ever imagine. That is what Christ comes to do for the outsider, for the Gentile, for the sinner. May we understand that beautiful message. And may we take it not only in truth to the world, but also in all of its beauty to the unbelieving world. Our first point, compassion for the outsider. Our second point, restored to wholeness. And third, food for the hungry. You see, Christ abides with them for three days. He's been with them. He has restored them. He is bringing them back to wholeness. And then he begins to feed them, does he not? Now the liberals want to claim, oh, well, Matthew is just very forgetful. He completely forgot that he just recorded a feeding in the previous chapter. And then he just ham-fistedly recorded the exact same feeding. And he just made a mistake with the, with the number of people who were then fed. Give me a break. Give me a break. There's a different number of people. There's a different context. We have first Jew and now Gentile. And we have Christ coming to feed and to feed the Gentile with a heavenly bread. Now I say a heavenly bread because our surrounding context is really pushing us in this direction to see much more than just feeding the hungry in an outward bodily sense. Much more is going on here. Much more is being symbolized to us about Christ's compassion for the outsider. First, we should understand that the signs, be reminded that those are heavenly, pointing us to something greater than the mere physical events, which suggests that this earthly bread is pointing us to a heavenly bread. Furthermore, we've seen within our surrounding context that food has had a heavenly meaning. There were overtones of the Exodus back in chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000. The Jews being there in the desolate wilderness, being fed in 12 baskets, being gathered together. Some clear echoes of the Exodus there and that manna from heaven. We saw as well the Food laws being overturned because they always had a spiritual meaning. And that the Gentile woman wanted crumbs from under Christ's table. Were they talking about just mere earthly bread? No. But heavenly bread. Heavenly life. Furthermore, we read earlier in Matthew chapter 18 
that Matthew has had this notion of a messianic banquet table in mind. And he told us when that Gentile centurion believed and found healing, and his faith was greater than anyone in Israel, Jesus said that many will come from east and west and come to the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What table is he talking about? The Messianic banquet table. There's a clear theme going on here in Matthew's Gospel that not only will the Jews be fed, the believing Jews, but also the believing Gentile will gather at that spiritual feast. In our own text, we see this very same thing being suggested. Notice, Jesus did what? He took bread. He gave thanks or blessed. He broke it. He distributed it. And what did they do? But then they ate it. The very same string of Greek terms, very same order that's going to appear in just a few chapters as Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper. We need to be seeing here a hint at what is coming. That Christ is welcoming to his heavenly table not only the Jew, but also the Gentile. Because, beloved, this has always been Christ's purpose. This has been the goal of our triune God from before creation itself. The problem was that the Jews had developed tunnel vision to think that it was all about them. And so the prophecies we read in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 35 of our Old Testament reading... They applied only to them. Whereas, it was much bigger than that. It included them, just like these things include you, beloved, but it's much bigger than you. It goes to the outsider as well. It's a banquet table spread with extra food beyond our satisfaction because more need to be brought in, more need to be gathered, a place where the unbeliever can rejoice at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so I ask you again, what aspirations do you have for this church? Will it be only a church that is joyfully reformed like others we've experienced? Will it be only a church where we cross our doctrinal T's and dot our doctrinal I's? Will it be only a church that cares for those who have been spiritually wounded in the past? Or will it also be a church that shows compassion and patience for the outsider, bearing with those who struggle with things that we don't today struggle with, perhaps? Bearing with those whose lives are messy. Bearing with those whom the watching world would want us to despise and hate. Will we be that sort of church as well? For this will require of us times of discomfort. It will require of us sacrifice of our time, of our treasures, 
of our skills. It will require of us an extra seat at our tables to welcome someone, to sit next to us for fellowship meals, to sit with us in our homes. It will require of us a heart that does not fear the outsider, but rather is more like Christ, full of compassion. For as we begin to welcome, as we begin to show compassion, we provide then a context where people can then understand what we have spiritually understood. That we serve a compassionate God and Savior who has come to us in the sacrament of holy baptism to signify and seal unto us the restoration of our humanity. And that we have a Savior who does not only signify and seal unto us the restoration of our humanity, but then who also comes to us in our desolate wilderness to feed us with Himself. That is the Christ we serve. And that is the Christ who is ready to serve the outsider. I want to close by reading some verses that are near and dear to my heart. Verses that have come back to time and again as I think about what I desire this church to be. And I trust that this vision of Isaiah 25 will be a vision that you share. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Beloved, may we be such a manifestation of that heavenly mountain that those who are weeping, that those who are hungry, that those who need Christ may come to us for years to come and be welcomed and to find him. Amen.